Hello, everyone. Welcome to Every Kind of Mind, a podcast all about exploring different types of minds and celebrating neurodiversity. Every Kind of Mind is a podcast series under Simply Neuroscience's The Synapse Podcast. Today, we will be covering ADHD, otherwise known as Attention Deficit or Hyperactivity Disorder, which can lead to difficulty sustaining attention, hyperactivity, and impulsive behavior. You'll go on this journey with me, Janice Muscavage. And me, Sophie Cohen. As your host, our guest today is Elle Rose, known as Secret Lady Spider Online, who is a queer disabled writer that has ADHD. Hi, welcome to the show. And then can you just please say your name and pronouns, please? Yeah, hi, thank you for having me. Again, L Rose. Pronouns are she, her, they, them. Sometimes I just go by L, but usually it's L Rose. Okay, awesome. Thanks for sharing. So to start off the episode, we were wondering what was the journey of your neurodiverse brain? I have ADHD. I'm diagnosed as the combination type. So that's going to be someone who is primarily impulsive, hyperactive, and inattentive. They now have three subtypes for ADHD. The inattentive used to be what we used to call ADD. I was not diagnosed correctly until I was 25. I'm 29 now. I was initially misdiagnosed for years and years and years. I was first diagnosed with major depression when I was about 12. And then I kind of went in and out of like therapy and all these other things. That's a story unto itself. And then as an adult, I started looking for help again. My life just kind of was falling apart in college. And I was initially diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I was given bipolar meds, but that was actually ruining my life because I do not have bipolar disorder. And then after several years of like, I had a new psychiatrist and I tried to be like, hey, you know, maybe you got it wrong because all these meds you're saying I need to be on, all of them made me like unable to function or even like leave the house. Like it was, it was awful and I couldn't calm down, but I also needed excessive sleep and I couldn't get anything done. I didn't know what was wrong with me because I'm like, I'm doing all the things you tell me to do. I was exercising, trying to eat right, but I also just it's really hard to explain. It was almost like a daily panic attack. And then I finally was like, all right, you know what? She's not going to listen to me. And I went to a new doctor in 2018. And I was like, I don't know if I have ADHD or bipolar or both, or maybe I'm just hard to medicate, but I really need help. And I've wondered about ADHD before. She put me on a very low dose of Adderall and it, like the difference was instant. It was like I could turn the volume down of my brain and I'd never known that was even an option. And then two years later, my insurance made me get diagnosed again. So that's when they made me get like the in-depth psychological testing. Then it was diagnosed a second time and that was in 2020. So what were like the different like signs and symptoms you were experiencing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. As a kid, I could not shut up. I was just constantly like talk, 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 talk. Hey, what's this? People commented on it all the time. They were like, oh, you're really bubbly. You're really full of energy. Just like bounce, bounce, bounce. When I was finally really depressed in middle school, even though I was experiencing major depression, I was also in drama club, jazz band, and I also marched with the guard while I did cross country and also was in choir. I was doing so many things. 
one of the things on the checklist is always going as if driven by a motor. And that is something that fits me very, very well and always has and still does to a point, although I have had to consciously pull back and very consciously look at, you know, what I'm doing and when is it too much? Because that happened in college where I would just, I would burn myself out all the time and be awake for days and days and days because I'd be trying to catch up because I didn't know why I was behind. That's another thing is I would get stuck and have no idea why. And the harder I tried to push to not be stuck, the more stuck I got. So it's just this vicious cycle of me beating myself up for something that I did not know was wrong. And then trying harder to push through it and then beating myself up over and over and over. And that's something that apparently applies to executive dysfunction, which I didn't know. Another big one was emotional dysregulation. A lot of people don't know that about ADHD. I also have depression, which doesn't help. In ADHD, you can also have a really hard time regulating your emotions. And by that, I mean, say a boy breaks up with you and you're dating and um, a normal girl my age would have been like sad for like a couple weeks and then moved on with her life. And then I would be like devastated and like have suicidal thoughts and like all kinds of stuff like that. It was an extreme thing. And it also went in the other direction where like something was really good and it was coursing through my body levels of excitement that up and down. My mom once said, you were bipolar as a baby. So I would get really, really mad or I would get really, really happy, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't remember that. But <laughs> I guess she does. Yeah, those were some signs. Um, just the constant go, 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 go. And also the hyper focus, which I thought was mania because, you know, I was like, oh, I can't stop working on this. But I was getting tired the entire time while I was doing a thing, but I couldn't stop doing the thing. Like once in college, I fainted in our printmaking lab because I just couldn't stop working on something. And then I went back to the dorm after the other people there were like, uh, you got to go home. <laughs> and then I went back to the dorm and started reading about the thing that I was illustrating because I couldn't, even after that, I couldn't remove my focus from it. Yeah, that's probably a lot. But <laughs> those are some of the signs that were always there. Yeah, that was really informative. You mentioned you have the combined type. So you mm -hmm. have symptoms of like hyperactivity, impulsivity, and also inattentiveness. A lot of the times ADHD is stereotyped as like this little boy's disorder that these little boys who are like really hyperactive and you also have the inattentive type. So I was wondering, what do you think other people understood about ADHD and like, what are some common misconceptions? Because I know you also mentioned hyperfocus and dysregulation, which are some lesser known yeah. symptoms. Sometimes I wonder if symptoms is a good way to put it so much as it's just like traits, because I know we define it as symptoms, but the more I learn about myself and it, the more I'm like, I don't know if that's so much a symptom as it is just, this is what my brain does. So I do wonder about that sometimes, you know, on the one hand, like I can see why they call it that. But on the other hand, I'm like, does that really apply in the same way as like my depression, you know? Yeah. So some misconceptions for starters, I was constantly fidgeting in class, but I was not like, bouncing off the walls. I wasn't like disruptive, that kind of thing. I knew other students who got diagnosed later, but I was never really in that. One misconception common is that we're bad at school. I graduated 19th in my class of 120, a um, pretty small high school. And I worked my proverbial rear end off to do that. I worked so hard on that. I worked so hard on school. 
And another is that we're lazy. I don't know a single lazy person with ADHD. To be honest, I don't know a lot of people who are actually, I don't even think I know anybody who's actually lazy. People who call themselves lazy, and I still struggle with this a lot, are generally like, you are in need of rest. You need rest, but you think that taking that time to rest means you're doing something wrong. I still struggle so much with that, but we're not lazy. That was one thing people used to, in college, be like, you are constantly working so hard. Like, why don't you ever take a break? And I'm like, you don't understand. I'm not at the same level as these other students. And I can't seem to get there. And I couldn't get past that for a really long time. Um, and then with emotional dysregulation, that is actually something that tends to affect like a lot of people with ADHD, particularly if you are raised as a girl or you know, if you're a cis woman, then it's probably going to affect you in a more internalized way. They've done longevity studies where they found that people who are like cis women or raised, you know, AFAB like myself, are more likely to engage in self-injury behaviors or attempt suicide by the age of 19 because of emotional dysregulation. And that's something that you don't really see talked about a lot either. And the other thing is the hyperfocus. ADHD is probably the worst named disorder ever. It is pretty much named for how it annoys people who don't have it, because we literally do not have a deficit of attention, literally. We have a deficit of dopamine and we're constantly seeking dopamine, which is part of why you actually end up with like self-destructive behaviors because a lot of those self-destructive behaviors such as eating disorders or impulsive sex or reckless driving or even drinking alcohol or self-injury, that kind of thing, do come with a rush of dopamine. So like you end up addicted to those things because you're trying to self-regulate and you don't even know that you're trying to do it. You're trying to regulate your dopamine, not trying to regulate your attention, but your attention, it seems, is greatly impacted by how your frontal lobe develops and also by dopamine. So if you can find that thing that gives you dopamine, then that helps a little bit. But the difficult thing is getting dopamine as you do the task. Because for us, it doesn't release until the end of the task. Like Whereas for people who don't have ADHD, you probably get a little hit of it as you do the thing. We look like we're not paying attention, but most of the time, like we end up with these hyper fixations or we end up unable to stop doing a thing for hours or hours or days at a time, depending on what it is. Like me in college, like when I was in the printmaking lab where I couldn't stop printing even to the point of fainting. That's a little bit of an extreme example, but that kind of thing is that's not the only time that that's happened. And basically what that is, is you're getting dopamine from something and you like and your brain is like, this is what we're going to do. And people in hyper-focus will ignore the need to eat, ignore the need to sleep, ignore basically everything except for that thing. And it's really, really difficult even for us to pull ourselves out of it. And then if something pulls us out of it, then we get very, very tired because we're like, oh, I was using all of my processing power basically to do this. It's basically just named for how it looks to other people. Because even the hyperactivity, you're basically subconsciously looking to stimulate its self-stimming behaviors. It's a deficit to neurotypical people, <laughs> whereas for us, it's actually an abundance of the wrong thing, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Thank you so much for that description. I do want to go back to like what you said earlier about laziness not really being a thing, because I've seen that a lot more where it's like, oh, like you're not just like lazy. I think I heard one thing was procrastination is like a trauma response. Yeah. 
you've been told like you can't just sit there and do nothing. You always have to be doing something or people will like call you lazy when you really are just wanting rest. And then so people are like, oh, like I need to always be working. But then their body like shuts down essentially and is like, no. And then people beat themselves up for it. Yeah, I heard that the other day. On I think it was also on a TikTok. Procrastination is a trauma response because you're putting off this thing because you both need rest and you're afraid of failure. So because you're terrified of failure and not being good enough, you end up not doing the thing, but you also feel terrible because you're not doing something. Mm-hmm. Even setting your own sleep schedule is a revolutionary act. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely feel the procrastination things because I definitely fall into that. That was me this morning being just like procrastinating and scrolling and then at the same time beating myself up. But I'm trying. I'm trying to put this into practice, but we're not there yet. It is really hard to put into practice. I've technically been in and out of therapy since I was like 12. And there's a lot of things that are also in therapy right now that are like, you know, have you tried looking at your world a different way? And it's like, I to have this brain that processes it this way, I have to figure out how to actually respond to that processing, not how to process it differently, right? There's a section now in assessments that's like, do you feel a sense of impending doom? And it's like, have you been outside? (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) just, of course. And so of course you procrastinate, like, because you need rest, but of course you beat yourself up for it because how dare you need rest? Like, yeah, absolutely. And takes, I don't know how anybody puts that into practice and doesn't think about the other part of it ever. I think anybody who says that they don't is just really good at telling off that voice in their head. Yeah, I feel that. So then transition like to what you do now. So I know that you are a writer. And so I was just wondering how ADHD like impacts your writing and your work. Mm. With it, I figured out that I have to find the right background noise, but I have to have background noise most of the time. Usually what I'll do is I'll put a song on loop until it kind of feels like white noise. It has to be a song with lyrics, and I don't know why. I spent all of 2021 listening to Suburban's Cradles on repeat when I was writing just over and over and over. And for some reason, it just got my brain into that headspace and I'll just sit there and try to write as much as I can for as long as I can usually past when I probably should be to be honest when I probably need to take a break I'm still unlearning so many things I'm afraid that if I take that break I won't come back to it so I'm still really really working hard on you have to get up and stretch you have to eat dinner can't wait till 11 p.m and expect to not eat everything in your kitchen like things like that So I'm still working on that. I try to plan. This is what I want the ending to feel like. And that's actually kind of usually my jumping off point. And then I try to write as much as I can out about it while I still have that focus on it for as long as I can. And then I don't edit as much as I should, but I'm trying to work on that as well. So yeah, I know like one of the main things you write about is your queerness or the whole like spectrum of it. So do you see your queerness and like neurodiversity like intersecting at all or no? I know there are some people, particularly with autism, who will tie either sexuality or gender, um, it's called auto-gender or autosexual, to being autistic. I don't feel that way towards my ADHD. I more think that they intersected because having to figure it out basically on my own, because I did not present in any quote-unquote typical way, made me look at other areas of my life where I've been pretending to be like other people or 
basically what I thought they wanted me to be like. So in that case, pretending to be allosexual, and it kind of made me look at that. So basically, that would be how I think they intersect as one kind of led to another, like, you basically start pulling on one thread of like the sweater you wear and then the whole thing unravels and you're like, Oh, now I have to make a new sweater is kind of how that went. Yeah. And like, would you be willing to talk about your multiple queer identities? For, like those that like don't know what, what they are. Yeah. yeah. Ace is short for asexual. It can also be short for things under the asexual umbrella. And that is little to no sexual attraction under that umbrella. More specifically, I am demisexual or gray ace or sometimes called gray sexual. I don't see that one as much though. And basically gray ace or gray sexual is like rare or limited sexual attraction. It doesn't have to be conditional, but it can also be an umbrella term. At least that's how I initially learned about it. And demisexual is you do not experience sexual attraction until a close bond is formed. Thanks to a lot of evangelical Christianity bleeding into every other area of our lives. I'm as confused you're just being a woman. It's different than just abstinence. It's not experiencing that attraction at all until that. And then I also identify as panromantic because I used to identify as pansexual. And then at a certain point came to terms with, no, you're ace, but gender doesn't really matter to me as far as who I'm romantically attracted to. I guess you could also say bi, but pan has always felt a little more on the nose. And then agender, I still present as femme, but I kind of came to the realization that I was like, I don't really feel cis. And then for a long time, I was like, I'm not a boy. And then I was like, well, I'm not really a girl, but I really like makeup and dressing up. And so it kind of just being able to separate that from gender is basically where that came from. So I'm a double A battery with, with, a, with a kitchen frying pan, I guess. Yeah, like app or like appa. Yeah, or like that vine where he's like, ah, you know. <laughs> well, you are pan, so it is true for you, but like the buy to ace pipeline or like the pan to ace pipeline is so real though. I wrote a really long essay. It ended up being a lot longer than I meant it to be when I was writing. I'm like, this is going to be straightforward. Nope. But there's actually been research done by, I'm afraid I'm not going to remember all their names, but there's a research paper about how common that is for aces. How many of us are like, oh, if we're not attracted to anybody, they must cancel out and I must be bi. And there was also in queer history, a lot of times where ace history was bi history until it kind of branched off into its own thing in the 90s. It's really interesting. But yeah, you're right. That's so real. There's so many of us that are like, wait a minute. I don't want to have sex with any of you. <laughs> like, yeah, I had that for a little bit, especially like for romantic attraction. I was like, I guess I feel seen by everybody. And then I thought about it more and I was like, actually, there's nothing there. So I'm a AAA battery. So I get you. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. So you mentioned you're on the A spectrum and you're also demisexual. And I know that sometimes you write about that on your platform. So mm-hmm. what was the decision process like to start? about being ace or demisexual and also just being open about having ADHD on such large platforms like Twitter? Well, when it comes to like ADHD, that kind of just always was something that I talked about after I got diagnosed. Mostly it was just I got really angry about people constantly dismissing it. I still get comments like that all the time. It's like, oh, everybody has stuff they don't want to do. Everybody has trouble. And I'm like, you don't understand like executive dysfunction isn't just I don't want to do something. It is, I physically can't. And it doesn't matter if it's something I want to do or not. And that's such a hard thing to explain. So it kind of just came out of 
I got pissed and I started doing research about it. And also the other thing that got me pissed was I was listening to a podcast about the Berkeley study that I mentioned earlier, where they did like the longevity study about cis women and AFABs who were diagnosed young and like how detrimental that could be even for when they got treatment and then for people to turn around and say, oh, everybody has days when they don't want to do the dishes. It really gets under my skin. I don't think people, even medical professionals often really do not understand the gravity that it can create in somebody's life. So there wasn't really a decision process there. It was more just, that's where it was. As for being demisexual, I thought about talking about it for a long time before I actually talked about it, both privately and publicly. Then I had a tweet kind of go viral and I was like, oh, there's kind of an audience for this. And I kind of got impulsive and hyper-focused on it for a bit. And then it started to be something where I started receiving messages where people are like, oh, this has helped me or, oh, this has been like really affirming. I want people to feel that and not feel so confused for like the first however many years of their life. So it went from being something I was hyper-focused on so much as what would my 16-year-old self have needed? And it kind of went from there. It was like, oh, if this is actually a good thing, maybe I can keep doing it. So a little bit more thought went into that one, but with ADHD, it was more just righteous anger. <laughs> yeah. So transitioning again, you know, we're like a neuroscience-based podcast. So I was just kind of wondering yeah. what you wanted future neuroscientists to know, because I know you were just talking about like the medical professional field yeah. not being great all the time. How do you think the field of neuroscience can better help support neurodiverse people? I think the best thing would be to expand studies into demographics that they think are less likely to have either ADHD or another neurodiversity, particularly autism, because the reason you think those groups don't have it is because you are not taking the time to learn about or study them. And that has a ripple effect. I think that would be the biggest thing that they could do. Not to say that there isn't merit in being the stereotype that has it. But so many of us do not get help, and that can actually be a really, really serious problem because they're only looking at one kind of person. I think the other thing would be to make your research accessible. If you put up a video, you need to put captions on it, that kind of thing. But also, if I go to the doctor and they don't have any way to access the research that you're doing, then that research doesn't do me any good, you know? Yeah. Additional question. Do you think there's anything that field neuroscience can do to support people that are queer as well? Or is it just kind of the same as what you just said? I would say it's kind of the same as okay. like, yeah, basically learning about it, learning about things that you don't know about and actually consciously keeping an open mind to it, I think are kind of the only things there. I think just like educating people and also just being, like you said, open-minded and just accommodating people and just being open to providing accommodations is super important. So as this episode is wrapping up, what is the main takeaway for the audience? So like what like little piece of information do you wish that you could pop into everyone's head? Gosh, that's a difficult one. Biggest one I think for demisexuality I see most often is the concept that everybody's demi. So I think I would say, no, not everybody's demisexual. But you can learn about what it really is. You might be demisexual, but you also will learn that it's not a thing that just everybody is. Cool world for me if it was, but <laughs> unfortunately, that's not the world I live in. I would be cool with that. And then for ADHD, we can have boobs. We can present in a variety of ways. People with ADHD can be any race or any gender or any sexuality. 
And if you think that you might have it, you might not be able to get professionally diagnosed, unfortunately, especially if you're in America. But it is worth looking into very seriously. If you're like, I really relate to this, learning about it can really change your life. Yeah, awesome. We definitely want to also highlight you at the end of this episode. So what are social media handles or where people find like your work if they're interested, stuff like that? Yeah, so the best one would be Twitter that has my link tree and that's where I hang out the most. And that is just secretly inspired. The first E is missing because Twitter said 15 characters was too many. That's why it's like that. And that also has my link tree in my bio, same handle on Instagram and TikTok and Medium. Medium is where my blog posts are. And then also on Patreon, same handle. That'd be the best place is go to Twitter and then just go to the link tree and you can see all the stuff. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I probably should do less stuff. Hey, but you know, you got that little motor going. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> the motor's running out of gas. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so that was kind of all we have. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on this episode with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh